Please open your Bibles to First Thessalonians. Let's go first to First Thessalonians chapter five. So you keep a finger in First Thessalonians chapter five, and then Hebrews thirteen. So First Thessalonians five, and then Hebrews chapter thirteen. I want to invite you to stand up if you can. Let's read God's infallible, beautiful Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting verse 12 and then verse 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, today is our final message on this series on the doctrine of the church. I don't know. At first I thought you were going to have maybe three Sundays, and the series kept growing, and I think we had maybe 12, 13 sermons on the church. And just to refresh your mind, we begin where we are supposed to begin. Remember, we begin in Genesis. The church, you remember the first sermon? I was reading a Roman Catholic liberal, that's double no-no, Roman Catholic and liberal. And he was talking about how the church was actually an accident. Do you remember that? That Jesus was expecting the kingdom, and actually, he was shortchanged and got the church instead. And we, we saw that, no, 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 the church has been part of God's plan in, in eternity. And went to Genesis, we started in Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw that the church is the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. And even marriage, that's so beautiful, so important, even marriage is actually pointing to something even greater. Greater than marriage? Yes, that's what Paul says. Actually, marriage here on earth is just pointing. It's pointing to a greater marriage, a greater covenant. So that's all we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. So we started looking at the nature of the church. Then we moved to 1 Timothy chapter 3. There we saw that the church is God's household. And as a household, there are household codes. Every Every household, there must be some standards. And that's what we saw First 1 Timothy chapter 3. The church is God's household, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Remember, we got to understand the nature of the church in order to understand the, the mission of the church. Everybody wants to tell you what the church should be doing. Everybody's an expert on the church. Everybody's telling what the church should be doing. But actually, you can only find out what the church should be doing once we understand the nature of the church. And then we went to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we saw the identity of the church, the value of the church. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's why the church is so precious, belongs to God. The value of something is completely connected to the person to whom that object belongs. And that's what we saw. And then we moved to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that's where we started looking at the members of the church, the, the language of membership in a local church. It's not the creation of men, but it's a biblical language. And people say, where is membership in the Bible? First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, right there, very clear. And once we define the nature of the church, we start looking at some of the obligations that Christians have towards one another. And you remember, the greatest command that Jesus gave to His church was what? Love one another as I have loved you. And then we saw that we don't define love. It's easy for us to say, oh, I'm going to define how I'm supposed to love you. No. The Lord defines love. He's the one who is defining how we are supposed to love one another. And we saw that the different ways that we love one another... First one was to welcome one another. Paul says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. How do we welcome one another? And we saw, we welcome them into our hearts. We're supposed to welcome the brothers and sisters in a local church into our hearts. 
Paul says, receive them into your heart, the center of your emotions, the, the center of your life. It's not something that, hey, if I have some extra time, great. No, they're supposed to be welcoming to the center of your life. You're to welcome them with your arms. Do you remember, greet one another with a holy kiss. You're supposed to welcome them, show them how much you love them. We saw that. And welcome them into your homes. Hospitality. The Bible commands hospitality. It's not an option. Well, when I feel like one day when my house is clean. No, you are supposed to exercise hospitality. Welcoming one another to the center of your lives. Then we went to Hebrews chapter 10 and we saw that instead of missing church, we're supposed to come to church ready to uh, stir one another. You're supposed to be thinking about the members of your church at home. Consider one another, the author of Hebrews says. Consider, study carefully the life of the people in your church. And then instead of missing church, no, you come to church and you come ready to encourage them, to stir them to do what? Love and good deeds. Then we move to 1 Thessalonians 5, build one another up. So instead of tearing down, instead of destroying each other's life with gossip, with lack of love, you're actually commanded to build one another up. Then we saw in Philippians the duty of giving generously, sacrificially, and joyfully to your local church. And then we move to 1 Peter chapter 4, the command to serve one another with your spiritual gifts for the glory of God. And then the last one of the general duties was the duty of listening to the preaching, praying, singing, and partaking the ordinances together as a congregation. So we saw those, those are broad general duties for all Christians in their local churches. So those are some of the marks of a healthy church. And it's interesting that you usually don't find these marks in books. Why? Because it's kind of heavy. Obligations to welcome one another. Instead of missing church, come ready to stir one another. So those were the general duties for all Christians. And then two Sundays ago, or three Sundays ago, we started something more specific. And we started looking at the, the duties of church leaders, elders, pastors to the congregation. That was the next thing we did. Alright, let's move from the general to the more specific. And we spent two sermons dealing with the Duties of elders and pastors to the church members. Two sermons. I'm reminding you that because today I have one sermon in relation to the responsibility of church members to their elders. So you can't complain, okay? Because we had two for the leaders in relation to the congregation. Just one. Luke was, oof, I'm glad that's just one this week. So just one in the relationship of the church members to their leaders. And I know in a society where most professing Christians are permeated, infected with the gospel according to Oprah. That's the only gospel that they hear, the gospel according to Oprah. You've got to be nice, tolerant, accepting of everyone. When someone stands up and, and gives you commands and obligations, it, that becomes very offensive. Especially now, as we start dealing with leadership in the church. What? Submitting to leaders in the church? Obeying leaders in the church? So that can become very offensive. And even so many young people now, and old people, entering the Reformed theology. And most of them, they're not in local churches. They're all at their homes, listening to sermons on the YouTube. And even these guys were so violent in a holy way for discussing theology and debating theology, they're not under any leadership in a local church. So when you seek membership in a healthy church, in any healthy church, these are the duties that Jesus requires from you. This is what you must expect to give and expect from a local church. All these duties we saw. So let's keep moving. Here's the outline of this morning's sermon. The responsibility of obeying and submitting to your leaders the responsibility of honoring your leaders, and third, the responsibility of protecting and correcting your leaders when necessary. So let's go. Let's go first of all to Hebrews chapter 13. You can open your Bibles there. That's important. Hebrews chapter 13. As the author of Hebrews is coming towards the end of his letter, that's actually a sermon, as he himself calls this a sermon, Look at verse 15. He's, he's coming towards the end of this letter. He says, 
Now through Jesus Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. That's a very important verse. Because that's the context here. Because right after that, the author of Hebrews is going to demonstrate how Christians are to offer an acceptable worship to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And one of the ways is verse 17. One of the ways that you offer a sacrifice of praise, worship to Jesus, is by obeying your leaders and submitting to them. Have you ever thought about that? That one of your ways of worshiping the Lord is through your obedience, your submission to the leaders. Richard Phillips, in his commentary in Hebrews, he says, especially in a self-reliant culture like our own, submission to God-ordained authority is a true spiritual exercise and an element of our worship of the Lord. In the Bible, all submission, whether of citizens to rulers, children to parents, or wives to husbands, is done unto the Lord. It's a sacrificial act of worship and trust. So, obeying, submitting to your leaders is an act of worship. And I would say that the opposite is always true. So, lack of submission, lack of obedience is what? Profaning the name of the Lord. It's the opposite of worship. Okay? So, he says, obey your leaders. Let's go there. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So, first question as you're reading, who are my leaders? Who are my leaders? I ask you, who, who, who are your leaders? Are you a Christian? Were you saved? Did Jesus transform you? Were you born again through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you love Christ? So I ask you, who are your leaders? Because the presupposition of the New Testament is that every Christian is in a local church under a leadership. So he would not be writing here, obey your leaders. Say, yeah, if you're not that mature to live your life on your own, then you obey your leaders. No. Every single Christian is supposed to be in a local church obeying, submitting to their leaders. So obey your, your leaders. That's very important. Because the question is, who are your leaders? Anybody. Anybody is your leader. Any, any person who professes to be a Christian is your, your leader. Honestly, think about that. Because a lot of people who say, oh, I believe in the universal church. I don't believe in the local church. Let me ask you, who are your leaders? Anybody? Anybody? Any Christian? Any person who professes to be a minister is your leader. No. That's crazy. That's insanity. It's very specific to a local church. People who are among you. Okay, they obey your leaders. The shepherds must know their sheep and the sheep must know their shepherds. The context of a local church. And then Paul gives, uh, the author of Hebrews, sorry, gives two commandments. The first one is to obey. Okay, they obey. Pay thought. It's an interesting word. The, the Greek root here from pistis, and that's faith. The word pistis, faith, and conveys the idea of trusting and following. The word pethor speaks of an obedience that's the result of confidence and trust. That's the picture here of obeying your leaders. And let me clarify something before people get me out of context. So I want to be very clear. The, the text, the Bible never commands... Blind obedience. Okay? That's very important. Let, let's clarify here. The Bible never commands a sinful, blind, cultic allegiance to a man simply because of his position. Never. Instead, the Lord calls His people to an obedience that flows, that's governed by the Scriptures. So, whenever those placed in authority, whenever they command you to do something that God prohibits, or they prohibit you of doing something that God commands, what's your duty? What's your duty? You obey the Lord. You always obey the Lord. It doesn't matter if it's your parents and they're asking you to sin, if they're prohibiting you to do something that God commands, or commanding you to do something that God prohibits. If your wife and your husband, I remember the situation of a, a wife, she was a Christian, her husband didn't want her in church. My counsel to her, hey, you tell your husband, you love him, you love him, you respect him, but husband, I have a greater Lord over my life. And if your boss who is over you asks you to do something that's contrary to what God commands, 
You're supposed to obey the Lord. And if you're president or whoever is in authority over you. So the Bible never commands blind, sinful, cultic obedience. I just need to obey because that's what I need to do. No, you need to be thinking through things. Okay? And there are two extremes that we must fight. On one hand is the tendency to worship and idolize leaders. Thus magnifying the office beyond the scriptural grounds. And the other one is the tendency of degrading and diminishing church leaders to a place of sinful disrespect. And the Bible does not allow you to drift to either one of the shores. Okay? So the first one is obey. Obey your leaders. The second one is to submit. Very interesting. You go to the Greek and guess what? Guess what? It means submit. I was amazed by that. I was like, oh, let me see what the word submission means. And actually it means submission. To submit to the orders, directives of someone. And the words obey and submit, they are in the present tense, imperative, second person plural, implying that's not an option, but it's a command given to all Christians, all members of our church. Every believer owes these two things to their spiritual leaders. That's why you must be in a local church. That's why you must be a member of a church in order to uh, fulfill the Lord's command. That's one of the ways that we love one another. And let me just remind you the obedience and submission, because sometimes these two words, obedience and submission, cause people just to kind of, ah, I really don't like these words, obedience, submission. Well, let me just remind you that's the ABCs of Christian life. You cannot be a Christian without obedience and submission. First to Jesus, and the disobedience to Jesus, the submission to Jesus is reflected by submitting, obeying others whom He placed over you. Submission must be a disposition, disposition of all Christians. And a lot of people love to say, oh, I submit, I give my life to you, Lord. I love you. I love obeying you. But not the church leaders. That makes no sense. Because the way you show your love towards Christ, First John, is by loving the brotherhood. The way you show obedience to Christ, obeying those in authority over you. Let me ask you, why do you have a hard time with this concept of obeying, submitting your lives to church leaders? I know, as soon as I I brought up this topic here and you hear, "Ah, maybe it was a bad experience that you had, maybe a story that you heard. But honestly, the problem with obedience and submission is our sinful nature. It's sin. Sin always wants you to be what? In charge. Autonomous. Sin now is telling you, obey your heart. Doesn't matter what leaders are telling you. Listen to your heart, right? Sin is always encouraging you to do what's good in your own eyes. Sin, one of the, the metaphors for sin is rebellion. Rebellion against God's authority, against authority. So let me ask you, when the elders of this church ask you to do something, when they send you an email encouraging you to do something, to come to a meeting, to prioritize certain events, what is your first reaction? What is your reaction? You don't tell me what to do. If I have nothing better, then I can come. Or when we send an email, when we tell you, prioritize this, please do this, listen to this, do you put in your, sca- in your calendar, do you go there and, may I need to do this. Honestly, what is the disposition of your heart? Ah, Just another email. Just another request. They don't know my life. Do you quickly put on your planner? Do you strive to listen to whatever they're asking you? Or do you simply ignore and wait to see if something better will happen? You see, how you respond to what we are telling you, commanding you, exhorting you to do, is a reflection of your heart. Not not towards us, but towards Christ. You're reflecting your heart towards Jesus. So here he says, the reason why we must obey. Look at that. Why? Why you are to obey? Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are perfect, for they are sinless. Because you love their personality. Because you you always know that they are always right. No, look how he says. Obey your leaders and submit to them because of their work. Because they are keeping watch over your souls. Because of the God-given task of watching over your souls. That's why you obey them. You submit to them. 
because of their work of laboring the Lord to watch over souls. Remember last Lord's Day? To watch, to stay awake. They're awake. Watching over you. While you're sleeping spiritually, they're watching over the church to see if everything is going the way the Lord wants. Because of the nature of the work. That's why. And let me tell you, it's easy. It's easy to obey when things are clear and easy to be accepted. Right? But what happens when we don't have a chapter, a verse in the Bible? And what we have is the wisdom that God has given us, years of pastoral service. What happens? How do you respond when what we have is not something that we can just point towards the Bible and say, here, it's right there. We had a case. You guys were members. You remember that? With that member dealing with her spouse, the elders, we didn't have a Bible, a, a, a book from the Bible, a, a chapter and a verse to say, hey, here's what you need to do. We had to ask the advice of a lot of other mature men in the Lord to, to counsel her. And she could have said, hey, you know what, forget it. You don't have a, Bible, you don't have a book and a chapter in the Bible. I'm going to do what I want. No. It's the heart, the willingness to trust, obey. Remember, there's this trust. I trust you. You have proved yourself to be godly, to love the Lord, to be wise. I will obey you. I will trust you. Because God has placed you over me. And a lot of times we have information that some of you don't have access and you should not have access. So that's why you need to trust. A lot of times it's disobedience that's founded, grounded in trust. That what they're doing is actually wise. Isn't that interesting? A lot of parents, they, they have a lot of rules where they don't have a book in the Bible, a chapter and a verse, but they want their kids to obey that. Why? Because they have wisdom. They have experience. But the same parents, when they come to church, they're all rebellious. But they want their kids to be obedient, be submissive. And just one more thing before we keep moving here. Just, I'll just ask you to be very careful with personal preferences. That's very, very important to think through personal preferences. You must discern to know if what your leaders are requesting, asking you to do is unbiblical or simply against your personal preference. That's very important to be mature enough to know what they're asking me. Is that unbiblical or it's simply against my personal preference? And you need to be mature in the Lord to think through these things. Why am I being rebellious? Why am, is my heart not wanting to submit to them and obey them? Is that because it's my personal preference? Or it's because actually it's against a biblical command here. A biblical principle. Let me just say that most of the complaints that we receive in this church, that we have received and received, they're all grounded in personal preferences. Right then, Brian, the complaints we get here, we say, all right. Seems that's bothering you, it's bothering you a lot. Show us how we have been sinning against you. There, there's never a way to show how we are sinning. Just, I just don't like that. I just don't feel like that. Personal preferences, which the person cannot accept because it's contrary to their selfish desire. Most problems we face in this church is because of selfish personal preferences. And the words of James are very appropriate. Look how James says, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's talking to a church. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's exactly that. The problems we have in church is because of this sinful passions. Desire for what? For my personal preference to be accomplished in this church. That's what we always see. That's what we always experienced here, instead of humbly and joyfully obeying, submitting to the decisions, they want to fight. They want to place their preferences above all other people. So, when it comes to personal preference, and there are many personal preferences. I have a lot of personal preferences. Songs that you don't like. Okay, you gotta show us. Is it unbiblical? Or just you don't like the style of the music? I really don't like when a woman prays in this church. All right, you need to show us in the Bible how we are sinning by having a woman praying in the church. You know, if it's personal preference that you cannot prove biblically, you need to do what First Peter 5 says. Right after he talks to the elders, he talks to the young people, and that's the members. There's a contrast. 
The young ones are the members in the church. And he says, submit, humble yourselves. To humble yourself is a sign of maturity, Christian maturity. When you can say, hey, that's my personal preference, but do you know what? You guys are over me. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to argue about that. The Lord is wiser. That's a sign of maturity. So he says, obey your leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Two very important words. The obedience speaks of the external, the actions, and the submission speaks of an internal attitude. Action and attitude, practice and posture, both are important in the eyes of the Lord. When we ask you to do something, when we encourage, when we exhort you to do something, it's not just enough to do it. How is your heart? How is your heart? We saw that with the elders. It's not just leading. How are we leading? How, are, how is our hearts when we are leading the church? Warren Wiersbe, he says, When God's servant, led by God's Spirit, calls us to obey God's Word, then we must obey. This does not mean that every spiritual leader is always right in everything. Abraham, Moses, David, even Peter made mistakes in their words and deeds. A wise pastor knows he is made of clay and admits when he is wrong or when he needs expert counsel. But in spite of their limitations, God's spiritual leaders should be respected and obeyed unless it's obvious that they are out of God's will. As the spiritual leaders of the church meet together, plan, pray, and seek and follow God's will, we can be sure that God will rule and overrule in the decisions they make. So, brothers and sisters, first of all, you have the duty, the responsibility of obeying and submitting to your church leaders. And I say that without any hesitation. I don't feel awkward about saying that. I'm not more sensitive than God. You know, that would be weird for me to say that. That's awkward to say, well, I'm just speaking what God tells me to say so. So, I don't feel awkward to say that. It's very clear in the Bible. The command is very clear. So, you have the duty, responsibility. And as we will see, that becomes a privilege. Second, you have the responsibility of honoring your leaders. And now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We move out of Hebrews and we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where we read earlier this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is bringing his letter towards the end and he starts a series of exhortations to the whole church, very similar to Peter and the author of Hebrews. So he says, we ask you, what? Brothers, language of a household, language of family, reminding them that they are part of a household, a family. In a household, you have rules, you have people over you. And especially in ancient times, honor was very, a very important aspect of a household. So he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect. Look at that, the first word, to respect. The Greek verb oida means to know or to acknowledge, as the NIV says. And the idea here is that the church members are to acknowledge that their leaders are a gift of Jesus. Literally, they are to know their worth. So he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect, to know, know their worth. And then he says, to respect who? Anybody who professes to be a pastor? Anybody who professes to be a Christian? Look at the text. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, are over you, and admonish you. They're the leaders of the local church. They're among you. You know them. They know you. And the first thing that Paul says about these people is those who labor among you. That's a type of labor that leads to exhaustion. That's a heavy Greek word. One lexicon says it's to engage in hard work, implying difficulties and trouble. And let me just be honest. One of the most upsetting things I hear is sometimes when I get dressed, you go painting with Lucas. Oh, so you're going to work today. Or some of my relatives say, did you work today? As if the church work wasn't work. Brothers and sisters, I have done the heaviest work in my life outside pastoral ministry. I rem- some of you remember I worked for a funeral service working this summer, picking up dead bodies. These now, it's amazing. Let me tell you. Digging holes, working all night long, it's nothing compared to eight, ten hours sitting on a desk, laboring, 
praying for you, exercising this small brain that I have to, to go through the passage and, and let the Lord clarify things and study or deal with issues in the church, problems in families. Let me tell you, that's labor. That's hard work. Nights you don't sleep because you're praying or thinking. Your heart's heavy because of people in your church. And you hear some people say, you don't know the job I have. That's what I said. That's taking care of the people for whom Christ died. The God of the universe. He died for these people and He's giving you this job of watching over them. That's very simple, right? Very easy. So Paul says, and he says that you're supposed to respect and honor your leaders who admonish you. That's amazing. To admonish someone and instead of getting angry with that person, you're supposed to respect him. The easiest thing, what we see the most is when you admonish someone is what? That person gets upset. Who is he to admonish me? To exhort me? To rebuke me? person goes home and talks to the spouse, to the family at the table complaining. Did you hear what he said on that sermon? And Paul says, respect them. Respect them, those who admonish you. Instead of getting angry like a spoiled little kid. You're actually to think that they're admonishing you because they love you. Because they're watching over you. And then Paul says to esteem them. Look at that. That's, that's mind-boggling. To esteem the church leaders very highly in love. And the words that Paul used here are, are just even hard to find his words. He, he's just making up words here. He used first the, the word hegomai, that means to regard, to consider. And then he used another word. That means an extraordinary degree involving a considerable excess over what would be expected. As one commentator says, it's electrifying language. To esteem them beyond measure. That sounds like a joke, right? What? Esteem the pastors, the elders of my church? They're high? How is your heart? How is your heart in relation to that? How do you esteem the leaders of your church? The elders of your church? How do you regard them? So many people claim to be Christians. So many people claim to be mature Christians, but they have no regard, no respect, and no esteem whatsoever for their elders, pastors. When was the last time you repented? Let me ask you that. When was the last time you repented for not regarding your leaders as the Lord asked you to do? That's crazy, no? Oh, man. When was the last time you repented for not regarding the leaders of your church the way that the Lord commands you to? Why? Because of their labor. Because of their work. That's what Paul says. And that's very similar to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 5. Paul says, Let the elders who rule... Well, be considered worthy of double honor. And if you compare, I did that, I put the two passages side by side, and I look at the words, and it's amazing the similarities between the two, the two passages. Let the elders who rule well be considered, of, considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor, that's where you get honorarium, a lot of times when a pastor preaches at a funeral, at a wedding, people give them an offering called honorarium. The honor of serving that way. And this honor, I would say that this honor is multifaceted. Okay? There are many ways that you honor, they respect your leaders. I remember this man, he was always sleeping. Every single time that this friend of mine, the preacher, would preach, that man was sleeping. He was sleeping. And he said, I just feel awkward because he's such an important person in the church. He's giving so good to the church. And I feel uncomfortable to come and, and exhort him and challenge him. But it's very disrespectful for me that, that he sleeps every single service and sermon that I'm preaching. Brother, you need to go and talk to him. doesn't matter. you got to tell him. Be honest. Say, hey, that's very disrespectful. I labor all week preparing. Then I come to preach and you're actually sleeping every single Sunday. And the man's reply was... Oh, you're mistaken. I respect you so much. I hold you so high that I feel like I can sleep. I trust, I have trust my soul to you. I can just sleep while you preach because I know you're going to be faithful. You see, that's not the honor that he's requiring him. It's actually to pay attention, to take heed of the words and listen and obey. That's one of the ways that you honor. So he says, we ask you, going back to First Thessalonians, we ask you, here's once again the reason 
Just like in Hebrews, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love. Because, why? They're perfect? No. Because you love their personalities? No. Because of their work, of their labor. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. Look at how he finishes. He's telling the congregation, just, just be at peace among yourselves. When you disagree over personal preferences, be mature. Show your maturity by being at peace. So many personal preferences. The time of the service, the location of the church meetings, the type of songs. How about ce celebration? Oh, I can't believe he's going to take the last Sunday of October to have the Reformation Sunday. Some people get offended because we do that. Some people get offended because we don't do that. Or how about Christmas? I can't believe he hasn't preached a sermon just on the Christmas narrative. See, you got, you got a, is that personal preference or is that disobedience to the Word of God? Because if it's personal preference, you need to be the mature person just say, hey, you know what, that's my personal preference. You can come and talk to us say, I really like when that happens. And I would say also, just be careful to always tell us your personal preference. Because it can become pretty annoying when every time you need to tell your personal preference. You're free to tell your personal preference, but when you become a person who is always telling your personal preference, that's going to be hard to pay attention and listen carefully. So, true sign of Christian maturity is when you can disagree over non-essentials and personal preference without arguing or creating dissension in the church. Thirdly, and I come to the last one, the responsibility of protecting and correcting your leaders. So now let's go. I would invite you to turn your Bibles to First Timothy chapter five. As Paul is coming towards the end of First Timothy, he starts a series of orders to very practical orders to the church here. And in verses nineteen through twenty, he gives two orders, and you can see there, verse nineteen through twenty. The first command is related to accusations towards elders. And the second one is related to how to procedure. How to procedure when the elder is not repenting. So let's see the first one. The first duty, the first command. So Paul says you have the duty of not entertaining. Not entertaining accusations towards church leaders without proper evidence. So look at Paul's words here. Do not admit a charge. Let's pause. The word charge there, uh, the word to welcome, to admit first, means to welcome with interest. So you're entertaining that. One lexicon says, to come to believe something to be true and to respond accordingly. So Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't even welcome that. Don't even entertain false accusations. And the other word is categoria. That's the accusation there. Charges. It's a judicial word related to an official accusation. And when you think about elders, we often think about what is the charge. And we often think about a charge being related to a sinful lifestyle of the church leader. Sexual immorality, anger, lack of self-control. But you've got to remember that an accusation towards an elder can be because of false teaching, heresy. That's very important. What is the accusation? What is the charge here? Is that related to his teaching or to his lifestyle? I know, and Paul says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I think that's very important. Martyros, where you get martyr, the one who would stand in court. The proper sphere of the term is legal, signify a personal testimony of events, relations, and person. And you've got to think, the biblical witness, when you talk about a witness... The biblical definition of a witness is someone who saw, heard, or experienced death. Okay? That's very important. That's very important to understand. What is a biblical witness? It refers to people who personally heard the false teaching or personally experienced the sinful behavior of the leader. Two or three witnesses is not a group of immature people blabbing the same thing. It does not refer to one bitter couple leading a cohort of other people parroting the same thing. It speaks of two or more people in the congregation who have themselves experienced, heard, or saw the sinful act. That's very important. 
Because it's easy to get immature people to follow after you and start just blabbing the same thing that you're blabbing. The question is, have you experienced that? Have you seen it with your eyes? Have you heard it with your ears? Or you're just being led by this person to believe that? That's very easy. Philip Ryken, he writes in his commentary, two or three witnesses are required not for a conviction, but before an accusation can be entertained at all. A church member stirs up trouble by slandering one of the elders, either publicly or privately. Even if the charge ultimately proves to be unfounded, the man's reputation will be tarnished. This is why every elder should be presumed innocent until he gets a fair hearing. And one of the, one of the ways that sinful people show their sinfulness is by imitating Satan and slandering church leaders. Let me just tell you that. That's very normal for sinful people when they're upset at their leaders to show their sinfulness by what? Slandering leaders. And that's nothing new. You go through the Old Testament, you go through the New Testament, and you see all the leaders, the prophets that God sent to His people, they would be slandered, false accused. So that's very normal. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26 through 27, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 through 16, Paul, John, Timothy, Stephen, and many other leaders of the early church were falsely accused, slandered. So, it's very normal. Sadly, it's normal. And those who, who aspire eldership, you've got to be alert, you've got to be forewarned that that's going to happen. People will slander you with false accusations. Wives of elders must be ready to how to respond when these slanders, these false accusations come. Because they will come. But the problem is, when these people are falsely accusing, slandering God's leaders, they're actually sinning against the Lord. And I tell you, go home and go through these scriptures and see how the Lord deals with those people who slandered His faithful leaders. Go through these scriptures and see how God deals with people who slanders His leaders. Let me tell you. One lady got leprosy. Another group of people, the earth opened up and swallowed all of them. A couple fell dead right at the church worship service. And I see, because you might think, oh, God did not do that again. And I see, I see people who leave a church slandering in an unbiblical way, they leave a church and they never prosper spiritually. And they will not prosper spiritually. That's just how it is. I have never seen someone who left a, a healthy church slandering, lying about the leaders and then going to the church, to another church and just prospering and growing godliness in Christ-likeness. That never happens. Why? Because the Lord's hand is against that person. We have people leaving here, this church, slandering us. And you look at their lives. They're making money. But they're miserable. They're miserable, spiritually. So you have the duty and the obligation of honoring your leaders by protecting them from also false accusations. You must not entertain, welcome, even give careful consideration to accusations that don't have more than two people who have experienced, heard, or seen the sinful act. Isn't that interesting that Paul have? Would write this right here? Why, why would Paul write that right here? Because that's normal. That's why. It's normal. Sadly, it's normal. So that's why Paul writes this right here. Because it's normal for a sinful heart to manifest its sinfulness by imitating Satan and slandering church leaders when they don't get what they want. John Calvin said, None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. It's indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. Philip Ryken, he writes, The other thing involved in showing concern for the pastor's welfare and safety is guarding the pastor's character and reputation. One who esteems his pastor very highly in love seeks to protect him from whispers of criticism which Satan instigates from time to time. What do you do? Here's a question for you. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when someone begins to criticize and run down the pastors? Your response reveals how highly you esteem them. And I'm, I'm not saying that there are, there are 
sinful leaders, they're nasty pastors. But that, that's not what we are talking about. We are talking about faithful men, faithful men who lead the church faithfully. That's part of your duty not to entertain that. A few months ago, the members here know that. We, we, Brian and I received the worst email, slandering us. Here are some of the things that we are harsh men, that we are controlling freaks, cult like leaders, heavy handed. We have patriarchal authority. And then my ask, I ask you, how did you respond to that? When you, when you heard the accusations, when you hear accusations towards the leader, what's your response? Do you entertain that in your thoughts? And you start thinking, oh, maybe, probably, without never experiencing anything sinful from our part. Or to protect them and confront those people. Or, oh, how can I keep a friendship with them now, now that they've slandered all my pastors, the elders in my church? That's not honorable. That's not honorable. Slandering. Slandering. False accusations. No witness to prove. We invited the, the couple. Come to church. Bring witness with you. Nothing. Nothing. How do you respond? How did you respond? We know how some of you responded. We know. We need to think about these things. Am I entertaining these things? Am I disobeying the Lord? Because there is no biblical evidence. We're dealing here with Sinful personal preference that's trying to create division in the church. So you have the duty of honoring, protecting. But you also have the duty, on the other hand, you have the duty of publicly rebuking when they don't repent of sins. Look what Paul says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. If you have the two or three witness, and they can stand and say, Yes, this leader sinned against us. He taught false teaching. He had heresy here. Or yes, he acted in a sinful way towards us. He was very sinful. And you can prove how that was sinful. Not just, oh, I felt like your email wasn't that delicate. No. You've got to show us. You've got to prove that, hey, that was sinful how you behave. And if there is no repentance, then you follow the procedure of church discipline. And there is public exposition of sin. Public rebuke. It's a very clear case of church discipline. And look at the reason why. Look at the reason why it must be public. It's not, that, that's what happens nowadays, brothers and sisters. We have a scandal with pastors. And what do they do? It's all under the rug. We never hear about these things. You see, that's not honoring. If there is sin and there is no repentance... And it's grievous sin. It's a, it's a sin that's bringing shame to the church. They need to be publicly exposed. And I praise Trinity Church in Portland for doing that. But we don't see that happening. Let's hide. It's better for the gospel if you don't do that public. Who are you, old man, to give counsel to the Lord? Oh, we're going to do that public. People are going to leave the church. They're going to get scared. Look at Paul says. You do them in public. So, all those who see me have fear. Fear. Fear of hell. Fear of God. A reverential fear towards God's holiness. You see, church is not a place where you come. And, and you've got to have fun, man. No, sometimes you've got to come and, and honestly, just be sober in fear. Wow. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14. through 14, All that argument with tongues and prophecy. And he's like, Oh, I just wish people were speaking intelligible words so when a pagan comes to your service, he would come and just fall on his knees. And that's fear of the Lord and give glory to God in fear. That's what Paul is saying here. So if an elder of a local church is unrepentant of his false teaching, sinful lifestyle, the congregation has the responsibility and the duty to publicly rebuke him. That's your duty. But let me ask you, what if the person who brought the slander and the false accusation to the public, what do we do with that person? How about the people who were lying and slandering? I believe it's Lex Talionis. They will also be publicly rebuked and exposed for lying and slandering. Why? Because it's a heinous sin. It's bringing shame to the church, to the leaders that Jesus placed over his flock. So we, we be, we've got to be careful because you often hear, if there is smoke, there is fire. Right? That's all we hear. If there is smoke, there is fire. Let me tell you, James says that many times, 
Where there is smoke, there is fire, and the fire is the fire of a slanderous tongue, a lying tongue. So, and I'll finish with one last duty and obligation towards leaders, and that's the obligation of praying for your leaders. Richard Phillips, he writes, If you do not pray for these things regularly for your pastors, then you fail to realize both their importance for the church and the frailty of their sinful nature which, like yours, is flesh in all its weakness. We are living in a time marked by gross sins among spiritual leaders, the damage of which has been inestimable. And we should cry to God that such a thing should not happen in our church. We need to pray for the protection of our leaders. Oh, that's the duties, the obligations that you have towards leaders. Not a blind obedience, not a blind submission, actually governed by the Bible, in love, and as with all others, duties and responsibilities that we saw, all the other duties and responsibilities, all duties and responsibilities, they all become what? Privileges. They all become privileges in the life of the Christian. Let me tell you, when you go to bed, after obeying, submitting, honoring, protecting your leaders, and you go to bed and you place your head on your pillow, do you think that you are resembling Satan or Jesus? That day. So the more we fulfill these duties and obligations, the more we resemble Christ. As with all other duties and obligations. I always finish those sermons showing you how all these duties and obligations, they are actually privileges. Because they make us look like Christ. And the same with obedience, submission, honor. What, a, what other example of submission than Jesus Christ, who was God Himself? And submit to the point of death and death on a cross. Obedience to the Father, to His heavenly Father and His perfect Father. But not only that, obedience to sinful parents. Joseph and Mary, they're not perfect, they're sinful. And can you imagine for a holy person to be submitting to an imperfect couple? So he knows. He knows about submitting and obeying people who are imperfect. And yet, His submission, His obedience brought our salvation. And now He demands from us that our submission, our obedience, will lead us into sanctification. So we come towards the end of this whole series. And my prayer is, as a church, that we'll be growing in love towards Christ, love towards His church, love towards one another. And grow in our understanding of responsibilities that we have, the duties that we have, the commands that the Lord gives us. And all these duties, all these commands, they might sound heavy at first, but they are actually a blessing from the Lord. Because the more you fulfill them, the more you lay down at night, and the more the Scriptures are saying, yes, yes, you are becoming more and more like Christ. Father, we thank You. We thank You for this whole series on the doctrine of the church. I pray that you'd enlarge our hearts as you have enlarged our minds with information. Help us to love you, treasure you. And as we're going to sing this next song, I pray, Lord, that uh, our love for your bride, your church, would increase, that we would have tears for your people, that our toil, our care, would be towards the people whom you love the most, your church. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.